welcome to the Vancouver Global Shapers podcast, Shape the Conversation. My name is Missy Johnson, and today I'm joined by BC NDP candidate for Vancouver Langara, Tessica Trung, and BC Greens candidate for North Vancouver Seymour, Harrison Johnston. Hi guys, how are you? I'm good. Doing pretty good. Thank you so much for joining me today. I know you guys are probably super busy right now. Um, I really appreciate this. I know this is kind of weird podcasting remotely, but these are the times we're in. So I'll get started right away because like I said, I know you guys are really busy. So the Vancouver Global Shapers at our podcast, what we're aiming to do is empower youths and to help them get more involved in politics. So I'm glad that you guys are here today because I know that you're both very young and you're obviously very involved in politics. I'm wondering if you guys wanted to start by telling me how you first got involved. Tessica, I just read your feature in the Taiyi. It was fabulous with Chris. And I read something about Youth for Tap. Was that the first initiative you ever you ever got onto? Yeah, I would say that that's one of the first initiatives. I think just before that, I had been part of an outdoor education program called Trek, and that was the first time I think where where it really clicked to me. I think we went out to the landfill to learn about zero waste, or we went to um, the water treatment plant to learn about where our clean water comes from, um, and what was really fascinating for me was like, I think it, it suddenly made the connections for me. But yeah, so we ended up organizing um, a conference called Planet Earth. And I'm, I love puns. So it was a play on word plan and it, um, Earth, and really connecting city planners with young people to figure out how we could build more sustainable schools, more sustainable communities, um, and speak directly to decision makers from the city of Vancouver, from Metro Vancouver, um, and talk to them about what what future we wanted to have as young people. So that was the first kind of attempt in organizing. And we, we organized that for two years with students across the district. Um, and then after two years, I was like, oh my gosh, goodness, we spent like six to eight months planning a conference for one day. Harrison, I'm sure you know all about that, like, but I think it's planning rallies and strikes um and it was really difficult for me to understand like to know whether or not we were having a tangible impact right like for me i like measuring things i like knowing um in in like ways that feel quantifiable um and so i started working on something called use for tap because bottled water was just you know a pet peeve of mine um and i really wanted to figure out if we could have a bottled water free school Right. And honestly, at that time, I had no idea what I was doing. I think none of us knew what we were doing. Um, but now, in retrospect, I, I can say that we advanced behavioral policy and infrastructural change. Um, behavioral in terms of we were able to present and, and talk to pretty much anyone who would listen. So we went to the Parents Advisory Council. We talked to all the teachers. We went to every single grade assembly and presented to them. And we asked them, you know, this is our vision for a bottled water free school. And how can you get us there? Right. And it was really this like this invitation to the public to to ask them, hey, um, you know, what what like what can you do? Right. And the response was just phenomenal. Like our principal, you know, he agreed, you know, if you're able to fundraise something, we'll match it. Um, if a recycling club offered to donate um, whatever they they got from the recycling funds to install new water refill stations. A friend of mine who made videos um, offered to make a video to document our story, and we were able to win $1,000 from BC Green Games um, because of the video submission that she made, right? But I think the lesson from that was, well, one, you know, as students, we actually have so much power. And Eris Harrison, I know you know this because I can't wait to hear your story, um, but 
as students, we were able to like, not just do this in our schools, but I started going from school to school and talking at citywide conferences. And we were able to inspire other student clubs to do this as well. But what we realized was that we were running into the same challenges, the same barriers at the schools. So we decided to band together, form a coalition called Vancouver Youth for Tap and go directly to the source. So we went to the school board trustees, made a presentation to them, worked with them to workshop our our ask. Um, And the result of that is that we were able to install new water refill stations in every single public high school in Vancouver and now I think they've done that for elementary schools as well um, and that that was you know the right thing to do not just for the environment but also for for us like a, for socially mm-hmm. but also economically as well right you know there's yeah. an access issue there's a you know privatization of water is a huge issue um, so uh, that those are, you know, those are just some of the pieces that, you know, just as students, um, we're able to take on if we really own the agency and the power that we have as community. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So did you experience any resistance whatsoever? Was there anybody like, you know, you're just kids, you don't know what you're talking about? Or was it mostly oh, adults were very... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. And I think, you know, especially as a young candidate right now, and I'm sure Harrison mm-hmm. will have horror stories of this as well too, right? Um, that is constant, you know, like whether people ask it explicitly or they imply it, the question mm-hmm. is, who are you to think you can run and represent us as someone who's mm-hmm. in their 20s or as a young person generally, right? Mm-hmm. And I think... Mm-hmm. I'm okay with that because I think for so long, you know, I have been that underdog. I have been the youngest person, the only woman, the only racialized woman, the only Mm -hmm. queer woman in the room. And, you know, I was like, underestimate me, go ahead. Um, But watch out, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because just you wait. Um, And I, and I think, you know, that's the message that I'm hoping to send folks who might be listening and who might be thinking of running for leadership themselves um, that, you know, it never hurts to try and that you have Mm -hmm. more power than you might possibly imagine, especially if you invite people to join you. Yeah, for sure. Amazing. And then what about you, Harrison? I read that you were a huge part of the climate strike. Was that your first dip in the political pool? Yeah, so that was sort of my first um, dip into getting active in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, like my sort of political awakening, so I should call it, was during the 2016 election down in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, so like in 2015, seeing like Bernie Sanders, I was like, oh, wow, he's talking about a lot of like really great stuff. Mm-hmm. Um and that was sort of the first time that I started really paying attention to politics because I would have been what, like 15 then. Um, and yeah, then I spent like a good four years not really being like following politics, like paying attention to what was happening, but not really getting involved personally. Like I sort of like, oh, I'll just vote when I can. And, you know, um, and then, yeah, so last beginning of last year, um, seeing young people, so I, I didn't attend the first climate strike that happened, big climate strike that happened in March, um, and but I had a number of friends who were involved in organizing it. I was, at the time, working a, like, six-day-a-week job mm-hmm. uh, to be able to save up for rent and tuition and stuff, but... Um, it sort of happened at just the perfect time as my job. I was working as a lift operator up on Cypress Mountain. Um, and as soon as that job ended, it was pretty much organizing was just starting for the next climate strike. And I was like, hey, you know what? I'm just going to give this a try. So that was like the beginning of April. Um, 
and I sort of dove right in within like a week or so. I was one of the lead organizers of the strike that was coming up. I was like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into here? But um, yeah, from there, I was one of the lead organizers with sustainability teams of the climate strikes that have been happening. Um, since then, I've shifted into a bit of a more mentorship role since I'm now 21. Like I'm not, uh, it's mostly a high school group but I'm now mm-hmm. working to be mobilizing post-secondary students. And I have a bunch of, yeah, a bunch of different things that I'm working on. Um, but yeah, the climate strikes were definitely, I would say, my my first like dip into politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if there were young people listening right now who are trying to get involved in politics, you know, maybe 2020 was the year to radicalize them. How would you, what would you guys say would be the best approach to starting? Where could they start? How do you start organizing? I mean, I would say that sustainability teams is a perfect place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really easy way to like dip your, dip into it. You don't need any political experience, any political knowledge, just like dive in. Mm-hmm. They have like awesome trainings that really give you an idea of around these concepts of like organizing and climate justice and a lot of these really, really important concepts. Um, And really it's a really empowering experience. Like, especially Mm -hmm. if you're like organizing an action, just seeing like, wow, I actually have the power to like get other people into the streets, Mm -hmm. like fighting, calling out our politicians. Um, so yeah, I would I would highly recommend getting involved in sustainability teams. I think that it's really one of the best things you could do. Um, and certainly it's been kind of cool to see a lot of the young people who've gotten involved having like have no confidence in their ability or political knowledge get involved within a month or like meeting with important politicians and organizing massive strikes. Like it's just such a really cool confidence builder for people. And mm-hmm. it they are they are doing really great work and creating really great change um so yeah that would be that would be my recommendation also hey get involved in my campaign get involved in tesco's campaign get involved in the campaign for one of these awesome young candidates that are running um if you have time in the next week and a half we have left yeah what kind of stuff can people do to get involved to help you besides donate um are you guys doing door knocking right now is there text campaigning happening yeah, so we're do not doing any door knocking, and mm-hmm. um, actually, I think, you know, it's a it's a party wide decision, uh, which I really support because I think we don't need to unnecessarily, you know, put them at risk. Um, mm-hmm. But but I think like it's really pushed us to innovate as well, right? And Harrison, mm-hmm. I love to hear your ideas, but we've been doing a lot of digital door knocking, right? We've whether it's been on your traditional social media like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and now TikTok. We just made a video, you know, with the fleet back um, dreams challenge, longboarding and drinking chai, um, <laughs> market, right? And it's totally fun and innocent, and you know, it's just kind of like jumping onto a bad a bandwagon that's there. But mm-hmm. you know, if we if we actually think, you know, I think everything about it is actually very intentional, right? Like I wanted mm-hmm. to raise awareness about the Punjabian market. It's such an important cultural community, not just in Vancouver, Langara, but in all of Vancouver, Langara, right? And uh, mm-hmm. or, or, sorry, in all of Vancouver, in all of the city, the region. 
Um, Mm -hmm. And there's historic importance to it. Um, But like many other, you know, cultural communities, whether that's Chinatown or Little Italy or, um, you know, many of them are not doing so well, you know, and long before Mm -hmm. COVID as well. But I think particularly now during COVID. right? And so I think Mm -hmm. my role and my responsibility is as a a candidate and a potential representative is to make sure that, you know, as I'm doing this work, I'm also supporting and lifting up the communities that really make up the social fabric of Vancouver Langara. Right. We Mm -hmm. offer onboarding that's active transportation. Um, and and you laugh at it. It's totally funny, but you know I don't own a car, right? So I get around by cycling. I get around by taking public transit, and I live just far enough from public transit that it's really annoying and inconvenient to walk. So longboarding gets me there way faster, right? And I think you know that's that's another thing that it's like we want to promote that you know for folks who are able-bodied, for folks who can do it, you know who might not have three or four kids, um, you know there are other options, and we need to push for systemic um, options as well to support active transportation within our communities as well right mm-hmm. and, and so and I could go on and on right like of course we wanted to bring our reusable mugs but because of COVID they didn't accept that so we made sure to get it without the lids and without you know the the additional kind of cardboard mm-hmm. around it as well right so yeah it's a tiny little thing um, but I think just to dissect it to talk about like well actually our values are embedded here Right. And what mm-hmm. we are trying to amplify and support is really centered here. Um, and we've also been doing, you know, door knocking on LinkedIn, door knocking on Reddit, on every single, you know, app or platform or channel where we know people are. Right. Because that's mm-hmm. an age old engagement practice is like, don't ask people to come to you, like go to them and talk to them. Mm-hmm. Right. And make sure that um, you're you're actually showing up in community as opposed to just expecting people to come to your door. For sure, for sure. So had you campaigned for anyone before? Have you door knocked for people before? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So um, how is it different for you now? How, what is it a positive difference? Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, I am a little bit disappointed because as you can probably tell, I'm a huge extrovert. I love talking to people. <laughs> um, and it's, I feel like it's such a missed opportunity because I would be out on the doorstep every single day if I could, right? Mm-hmm. But instead, we're phone banking, you know, um, we're talking to people digitally. Um, and we're doing and I think it's really pushed us to innovate. And I actually mm-hmm. think this is where Harrison and I and other young candidates have a bit of an advantage, right? Because we've grown mm-hmm. up as digital natives, like we really and I don't think that's the best word for it. Like I think maybe digital digital folks who are digitally savvy, savvy, right? We've mm-hmm. grown up comfortable um, in, in a digital world and you know, we do talk to each other by texting, by messaging, by, you know, little Snapchat videos, <laughs> you know, like all that. And why not make it fun? Like, why not mm-hmm. showcasing Bangra, right? Like, and people who yeah. are teaching Bangra in Punjabi market, um, in the community to the rest of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about, I think I read just recently that um, almost 40% of British Columbians are under the age of 35. But obviously, 40% of the legislator is not young people. I think that there's always been this kind of (laughs) connotation that older people should make up the legislator because older people have more experience and that means more merit. But do you think that that's still the way to go? I mean, I think that it's really uh, not the best way to be looking at things, especially Mm -hmm. when we're living in a world that's changing so rapidly. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, even you look like right now, our youngest Emily Bonema is 35. Like, for example, the situation, the housing situation that she had to grow up in, like when she was in her early 20s, was a completely 
different situation than what young people are having to grow up with right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can look at so many different examples that where you really can't understand, like mm-hmm. you can't understand if you're in your late thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, what young people are going through today, what we're dealing with on so many of these issues. So I think that having youth representation is really, really crucial. Um, and certainly when I've been out talking to voters, like about my personal experience, like I'm a young person, I've been born and raised in my community here in North Vancouver. I can't really afford to live here anymore. Like mm-hmm. I've been priced out of this community that I love where I want to raise my family. Um, like I'm studying to become a high school teacher and high school teachers can't afford to live in this community. Mm-hmm. Nurses can't afford to live in this community. So many essential workers, students, mm-hmm. young people can't afford to live in this community. It's just not a community that's been designed in an intelligent way to really build a strong, resilient community. And I think a lot of that is because the young people who are often at the front lines of what of these crises we're facing, whether it's affordable housing, whether it's the overdose crisis, whether it's the climate crisis, um, young people are at the front lines of these and have the most understanding of really what the challenges that we're facing but our voices are completely marginalized um within government and the whatever chance we do have to speak or speak up with government it's more like oh hey let me get a selfie with these young people i'm talking with to show how good i'm being and how i'm interacting with them Mm -hmm. um but definitely the voters that i've been out talking with my message really resonates because they feel like oh, my children, my grandchildren are having the same experience that he is, being priced out of the community that they love. Um, So I think it's really actually resonating with people. And I think that voters on the ground do want to see young people represented, even if they're older. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that it's more that the current political establishment doesn't want to see young people represented in the legislature. (laughs) Yeah. So, and then I'll go back. I asked this to Tessica earlier. are you experiencing resistance right now because of your age? Do you have people saying to you, look, you're obviously too young to be in the legislator? I I don't think that I've had a single person directly say that to me. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't think I've had a single person even directly ask me, like, you're so young. Why should you represent me? There's definitely a lot of people who are skeptical and are probably like talking to me and they're like, oh, look at this nice young man who's running. Mm-hmm like for the green party oh i'll have a nice conversation with him but like wouldn't actually vote for me but no one has come outright and just asked me like why are you running you're too young um Mm -hmm. because i think like it really my message does resonate with people of all ages um Mm -hmm. because they they can see how young people are like why young people need to be represented in government and it's really like it's a pretty common sense idea like we want equal representation in our government the youngest 40% of British Columbians aren't represented. Like, that's mm-hmm. not a good situation. And that that resonates with people. People understand that. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. So you were talking about, you know, affordability. Do you think that that's what's at stake in this election? Or what do you think is the most pressing issue for youth in this election? Wow, that's, uh, <laughs> there are so many. Um, I, mean, I mean, I think the three that I mentioned, affordability, climate crisis, and overdose crisis, I think those are the three really, really crucial issues. And I think all of them are at stake in this election. I think that we've had governments for pretty much 20 years that have neglected all three of these issues. Um, 
and a lot of them are right at a tipping point where um like so for the climate crisis we have very very little time to be taking the action needed and doubling down on like subsidizing fracking projects and forcing pipelines to run into the indigenous territory while our the climate plans that we have in place don't align with science and there isn't there isn't like uh, plans in place to even reach the targets that our government is currently set mm -hmm. um that is just it's it's getting out of hand and another four years of the status quo on that is really going to put us like firmly on the course to climate catastrophe and it's going to take like every year every year that we aren't acting on that it's going to the action that we're going to need to take is going to get harder and harder and harder mm -hmm. um and it's the same thing on those other crises like really there are just common sense solutions that needed to be implemented 20 years ago um and haven't been and i think a lot of that is just because i think like the underrepresentation of youth in government really is a, a key part of that um because mm -hmm. all of those issues youth are at the front lines of them and the ones that are really really understanding the impacts mm -hmm. yeah. what about you tessica what do you think is the the most pressing issue for youth in this election Mm -hmm. um it's a big it's a huge question uh, i think mm -hmm. like picking favorite children <laughs> um, but i it's, it's funny because i think harrison you speak to those three issues and those are the top three that i talk about as well um, i think of course intersecting with the covid19 pandemic that's a huge motivation actually for me to run because i know that for once, what we've been told is not possible has had to happen in order to protect those who have been most vulnerable to the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Whether those are seniors, whether those are folks who are immunocompromised, like for once, the economy has actually ground to a near halt um, mm -hmm. in order to prioritize human health and life. Right. And that there's just such a similar parallel to the climate crisis. Right. And, and in a certain way and to a certain extent, like I think you can talk about how, you know, the opioid crisis or what advocates are now calling the poison drug a supply crisis um, is it, well, it's actually taking more lives than COVID, right? Mm -hmm. With yeah. us longer mm -hmm. than COVID as well. So why are we not recognizing the climate emergency? Why are we not recognizing the poison drug supply <laughs> emergency in the same way, right? Mm -hmm. And literally, like I've been working on the affordability crisis for over three, four years now, advocating to make sure that we have a breadth of solutions, right? That renters are recognized and renting is recognized as a valid, not just a wacky time in life, a funky time, mm -hmm. right? But actually half the city rent right and so mm -hmm. we know that this is a new normal this is not just you know a passing phase in some people's lives and i think it really speaks to how disconnected certain politicians are how out of touch they are with the everyday people and particularly with young people where you know i know that i can't you know cut enough avocado toast or not drink enough coffee um i would have to do that for 50 60 years just to try to save up for the down payment on a home right not just not let's not talk about paying off the more just to save up for the down payment on a home right mm -hmm. we know that this is not an individual failure 
Mm-hmm. We know that there are systemic, these are systemic problems, right? That required systemic solutions. And we mm-hmm. also know that the same type of thinking that brought us here will not get us out of there, right? And that's what's really mm-hmm. inspiring to me about, you know, the work of the sustainability teens and our time and so many other youth organizing movements and indigenous organizing movements who've been telling us this for so long that actually, you know, it's not climate justice or it's not the climate crisis versus COVID pandemic. It's not the climate crisis versus social justice. They are deeply interconnected issues Mm -hmm. and as we're planning the economic recovery for this province we need to figure out how are we going to prioritize those who have been most impacted right who have been Mm -hmm. disproportionately impacted now because of the COVID crisis but also because of the intersecting intersecting sorry intersecting crisis crises that we've faced for a long time whether that's systemic racism you know against indigenous people current Mm -hmm. you know the uh, the past and current like colonial um, project that we're all a part of, um, whether it's the climate crisis, we need to figure out solutions that are going going to prioritize um, those who are most at risk and who have been systemically, economically, and socially ex- excluded from um, mm-hmm. our society and from our community, right? Let's face the facts. Let's acknowledge the harm. Let's apologize. But more so than that, more so than pretty words, we need to act as well. Mm-hmm. And like, I can give you a very concrete example of something, you know, that the BCNDP government, you know, with the CASA agreement, working with the Greens, um, have made a priority that is a really concrete example. I think people like to hear stories and, you know, so many First Nations, so many Indigenous communities in our province, um, especially on reserve, are not mm-hmm. connected to the the, the um, energy grid. And so they need to import diesel into their communities in order to have an energy source, right? And Mm -hmm. not only is it the climate problem, because diesel is, you know, a horrible greenhouse gas, or burning Mm -hmm. diesel um, results in a a horrible greenhouse gas, but also, you know, it's an economic exclusion, right? There's health impacts, air quality impacts, right? Um, And it basically means that Indigenous and First Nations people, yeah, Indigenous communities in BC don't have the same, you know, quality of life that, you know, the rest of us as British Columbians um, get to enjoy without even thinking Mm -hmm. about it, right? And so if that's an area where we can actually prioritize making uh, and funding uh, Indigenous communities um, so that they can create their local community renewable energy projects and they can get off diesel, we're also building, you know, into that there, there's a potential to build an indigenous sovereignty right where they have control over their own energy supply they have access to jobs that stay in the community and that can't be exported um, but also is also solving or helping address the climate crisis right like i think we can mm-hmm. find these win 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 solutions if we're thoughtful if we're thorough and if we bring an intersectional lens to our work mm-hmm. yeah i for sure agree with you so there's a lot of work to be done absolutely Absolutely. We're running, right? I'm running because I want to work on these problems. Mm -hmm. Challenging, complex. You know, there's no one silver bullet um, Mm -hmm. to to the housing affordability crisis, right? We've got to try a lot of things. We've got to see what works. Um, And, you know, maybe like, let's take the affordable housing crisis, for example. Um, Of course, it's not solved, right? Mm -hmm. But when the BC government, the BC NDP government, you know, in in partnership with the Greens came into power, their first budget, they implemented a 30-point plan on housing. They were were saying, let's try 30 things. Let's see what works. 
and then we'll ratchet mm-hmm. up the ones that work and then we'll stop the ones that don't work, right? Mm-hmm. And over the past three years, our housing prices still have risen on average by 3.9%, right? But in the previous three years, um, in 20, uh, between 2015 and 2017, housing prices rose 55%. So 3.9% versus 55%. Of course, mm-hmm. there are global p- factors that are impacting our housing market. You know, every major city in the world, I would argue, is, you know, to a certain extent, wrestling with housing and affordability. But mm-hmm. there are tools and levers within our own provincial, federal, municipal, you name it, what level of government, a government's control um, that can ex- that can really cool down this housing affordability crisis and help um, make lives more affordable for British Columbians. Yeah, it just needs to get done, right? Exactly. It's a political will. Exactly like yeah. Susan said, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we have the solutions to the climate crisis. We have the science. We have the technology. We have the know-how. Mm-hmm. We even have the policy solutions. It's mm-hmm. just the political will to do it, the courage to say what's not popular, what's not necessarily you know easy, and also mm-hmm. to move and to navigate within complexity because there's no there's no easy solution here, right? And it, mm-hmm. we just really have to fig- work through the messiness to figure out what solutions are going to center the most marginalized and also mm-hmm. get there. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it also should, you know, be said too, you were talking, there's stuff that needs to happen at the municipal level and the federal level, but I think that there has to be a lot of communication between them too, right? Like teaming together with municipal government and the provincial government, they kind of need to come together to agree on these things, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'd say absolutely. There's been definitely some disconnects there that have been, Mm -hmm. I think, really harmful in many ways. Um, Like whether it's around municipalities not being allowed to take climate action because Mm -hmm. it's not within their charter. Like that that should be something that they're able to do. Um, But then there are also, I think, a lot of examples, I think especially with the provincial government recently, where they have passed the buck on things that they could could have been doing mm-hmm. um and there it we sort of see like an issue like the overdose crisis is just getting passed around from all three levels of government none of them wanting to take responsibility for it mm-hmm. um like for example you see like dr bonnie henry laid out a plan for how the bc government could effectively decriminalize drug users mm-hmm. um and then john horgan comes out and says no we can't do this even mm-hmm. though his provincial health officer said that he could do it <laughs> the horgan comes out and says no the federal government has to do it there's nothing we can do and then you hear him at the debate last night being like oh we've worked with bonnie henry so well on the mm-hmm. overdose crisis and done everything she said she has such great advice mm-hmm. like well you haven't been following her advice on that mm-hmm. um and i think there are similar similar um examples around housing, homelessness, the climate crisis, where the, the, the buck just gets passed around from different, um, from the different levels of government without any, anyone actually wanting to take responsibility for it. So I think that that's, that can be really harmful. So I think mm-hmm. that we really need to hold every level of government accountable mm-hmm. and ha- make sure that they're doing the utmost that they can to be pushing back against these crises. Mm-hmm. So the work that you guys are doing, the work you have been doing, you know, since your teenagers is, you know, can be very emotionally taxing and it can take a huge toll on you. Um, 
how do you how do you deal with life you know at the end of the day what what do you do to cope how do you prevent the burnout hmm. I, would, I would love to answer that question because this weekend in particular was really really hard for me mm-hmm. and i think really hard for many of us right whether we're women whether we're younger whether we're racialized um because of the remarks that were made by an elected MLA mm-hmm. um, towards another, towards one mom, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, who is the youngest, as Harrison mentioned, MLA, but also one of the few Asian women who are mm-hmm. elected in office, right? And she's brilliant, right? And for those of you who haven't been following along or, you know, hasn't kind of pushed into your bubble, basically what happened was there was accusations that she is able to be so effective that she's able to get the work that she's done because she is because she's a very pretty lady because Mm -hmm. she uses her sexuality to get her way, which is so disgusting. Um, (laughs) But it's also like, I actually, I, when I saw that and, and Harrison, I actually, yeah, we, I think, you know, we both chatted about this, but uh, I couldn't respond because Mm -hmm. I like, it brought up all the scarring Every, like it just made, reminded me of every single moment where I've been that person, right? And of course, this is about Bo and Ma, but so many of us have experienced that where, you know, I, you know, was part of so many committees and organizations where I'm the youngest person in the room. I'm the only person who is not white. I'm the only person, you know, who doesn't have kids, right? I'm the only person yeah. who um, is a woman in the room, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and in addition to that, I'm queer, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, it was I, I? I broke. I I cried la, uh, the night it happened, and the next day afterwards, um, and then I decided I actually can't run um, without being very very public about the fact that I'm queer, because you know of course you know my loved ones, my family, and my close friends know I'm queer, but it's especially within um, my community, it's not necessarily accepted. I think it's harder to actually come out, right? Because um, in, in certain ways, and I don't want to compare because I don't know what it's like in other communities, but in my community, you know, f- there have been candidates who are not even queer themselves, who, because they support two-spirited LGBTQIA folks, plus um, they, they've been accused of passing a, a quote-unquote gay serum, you know, converting mm-hmm. kids. It's just horrible, right? And mm-hmm. so and those folks are not even queer, right? So can you imagine the level of hate? Can you imagine the level of risk that I am intentionally exposing myself to? But because I was like, I can't be silent about this. Like, this is not acceptable. And what is the message that I'm sending if I'm running, um, you know, quietly about the fact that I'm queer? We know yeah. that people of color, we know that folks who are queer, we know that young people, we know that women, um, eh, have you know and many other you know folks with disabilities people who are neurodivergent I could go on and on have been excluded from the halls of power right Mm -hmm. and we need to see ourselves represented there because I often think that you know the poverty of imagination comes from the lack of representation in the stories that we tell Mm -hmm. right and that's I think you know the the root of many of the isms right is that we've never seen somebody who is this you know, the skin color and also mm-hmm. is a writer, is also a famous talk show host, is also a prime minister, you know? Mm-hmm. And and so we tell, the, the narratives that we tell ourselves about that is that, you know, it's only old, white, st- cis, het, straight, you know, men who who um, who can take on these roles, right? Mm-hmm. And um, 
and part of part of something that I really do want to share is that we made a commitment very early on in this campaign, right at the beginning. And part of why I decided to to have Nadine Nagakawa be my campaign manager is that we have a very similar view about campaign culture and about culture mm-hmm. in general, is that we're not going to create a more resilient, more sustainable, uh, more beautiful, more caring world if we run campaigns that burn people to the ground. So mm-hmm. right at the beginning of our campaign, we made a campaign culture document collectively as a group with all the folks who were there in the room. Um, and we committed to, to it being a living document where we center self and community care, right? And so um, when that happened, the incident happened this weekend, not only did I know that I didn't have to respond, I could take care of myself first and there would not be that pressure to respond right away. And I would respond when I, I was ready and in what was my own truth and in my own voice. Uh, but also the next day, I took the day completely off. I, you know, I was off the grid. I didn't have access to my phone or my computer. Um, I spent Thanksgiving with my family and I needed that. And I I think, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not slacking off. It's taking care of yourself. It's prioritizing your health and Mm -hmm. your your wellness. And because I took the day off, my team could also take the day off, right? Because they Mm -hmm. knew nothing was going to come through me. So (laughs) they they were also able to uh, enjoy their Thanksgiving with their families Mm -hmm. or um, with themselves and to rest. And so, you know, I think, of course, you know, this is this is in my my election campaign context, but I think it can be applied to workplaces. It can be applied mm-hmm. to families like we need to center ourselves and hold first true that we are human um, mm-hmm. we need to be loved. We need to have rest, um, mm-hmm. we need to be cared for and to care for each other. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. It's very much like the airplane face mask situation. You know, it's going to be very hard for you to take care of an entire province if you don't take care of yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about you, Harrison? How do you how do you take care of yourself? How do you get through this? Yeah, I mean, I obviously have a a bit of a different experience than Tessica as a white man in politics. <laughs> um, it's a yeah, a bit of a bit of a different. Um, yeah, definitely what? a different experience. No but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, but for me, like, so my, a big part of my motivation to run this time and to even just get involved in politics has been really to make, like, to give other people the confidence and the space to step forward. Mm-hmm. So, like, my campaign team, like pretty much all of them are younger than me. Uh, my core campaign team is entirely women and non-binary folks. Um, like I'm trying, these are the people who I, I'm kind of trying to, like a lot of them are, don't have the confidence yet to be like, oh, I, like, I don't know enough. I'm not really ready to step forward into politics. And I'm like, no, no, you are ready. Like you're going to come like manage my campaign. And then I'm going to get you to run in two years. Like (laughs) that's, that's what I'm trying to build and inspire and Mm -hmm. really use the bit of privilege. Well, no, quite a bit of privilege (laughs) that I have um, to, but Hey, I can maybe break down the barrier of youth not being considered like a bit like viable political options. Like if I can break that barrier down, that's one less thing that people have to deal with. Mm -hmm. um 
And that does come with a lot of, like, I often sort of see myself, like, for example, this, the, the comments that um, Jane Thornthwaite, who is actually the, the incumbent that I'm running against here, made about Bowen Ma. <laughs> like, I often see it like, hey, this is, like, my people who are, like, the, these, these are my white people who are making these comments, like, I gotta, I gotta step up and push back against this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I do sort of put a lot of um, pressure on myself sometimes to be constantly trying to push back against all of this. Um, so often, like, I just, yeah, just take, I mean, I'm in, uh, different than Tesco, I'm, a much more of an introvert which is I guess a bit interesting in politics um but often like so after like the night the night that those comments were made I put out all these statements and I was like okay I just need to take like three hours to myself like mm-hmm. I I'll whatever I'll go like uh I don't know read a book play online chess something <laughs> like just something to take my mind completely out of it um but I I, I feel like in general, I've been pretty good at trying to avoid burnout while also like really, really trying to be engaged as often as I can because there's just so much that, yeah, like I'd say like my people, like white people are doing that it's just so problematic that people need to be pushing back against. And it's not the role of uh whether it's queer folks bipoc folks like it's not that women to be pushing back against stuff that my mm-hmm. people are doing like that's my job mm-hmm. um and yeah so that's really what i've been trying to do and i'll definitely i'll definitely need to whatever the outcome of this campaign afterwards take a couple of weeks to myself <laughs> but, um Mm-hmm. yeah 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 and maybe if I can just jump in there because I think what Harrison is highlighting is so important is that for me I don't have a choice about whether you know I am impacted by this right like this is just my life but mm-hmm. Harrison is you know working to be an ally right where he has mm-hmm. to make an active choice at every moment do I stay silent do I mm-hmm. stay listen to this or do I speak up because if he doesn't speak up then the pressure then falls back to people like me right yeah. to then not just mm-hmm. deal with the trauma of this mm-hmm. but also to then have to be the ones um on the front lines right um and often there's a power dynamic there that doesn't work right mm-hmm. that results in the tropes of you know angry racialized woman you know mm-hmm. um, right? <laughs> so the person that's always pulling the quote unquote race card right mm-hmm. when you know it's just our lived experience and we haven't been heard and that's why people keep saying the same thing over and over again but it's because we haven't been heard right um so i yeah i really thank people like harrison and other folks who you know understand their intersectional privilege and are mm-hmm. willing to take the fight into their own hands, even mm-hmm. though it may not, you know, at the surface level appear like it is impacting them. But, at, you mm-hmm. know, at the end of the day, it's really our collective liberation is tied to one another, right? Mm-hmm. And at every moment where we choose not to speak up, when we choose not to act, where we choose to laugh at comments that are so harmful and hurtful, um, and we, uh, we uphold the status quo that continues to harm and um yeah to harm so many of us Mm -hmm. yeah amazing i'm so thankful that you guys 
chatted with me today. I got so much from this and I'm really excited to put this podcast together. I think that you guys said a lot of really important things that young people need to hear right now, Um, especially young people who want to get involved, but maybe don't know how or don't know where to go. Um, I I think you guys are doing some really inspiring work for other young people that want to get involved too. And I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Absolutely. And if I could just go back to that question, like I think start anywhere. You know, it Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be within the political space, even like I started Mm -hmm. in environmental organizing. Maybe you care a lot about social justice, like maybe you care. And, you know, we know those things aren't, Mm -hmm. you know, separate, but just start somewhere. Right. Mm -hmm. And ask other people who are doing interesting things that you'd like to do, how you can get involved. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think it's not so much um, there's not necessarily one path. Uh, You know, there's Mm -hmm. multiple paths to walk and and you just have to Mm -hmm. be you know, really to really honor your own, your own path and what you're curious about, what you're passionate about and what's the Mm -hmm. impact that you want to do in the world. But please, please, I think if you can, please vote, um, not on October 24th, but you can, you can vote, um, now if you want to request a mail-in ballot or you can vote on seven days during the seven days of advanced voting from October 15th, Mm -hmm. um, to 21st. And you can vote any day at your district electoral office. And there's one in every single riding in BC. So Mm -hmm. I think there's no excuse. There's so many options. Um, and for folks who have barriers, um, there are people like us who are there to help you. Um, lessen those barriers as well to, mm-hmm. to getting to uh, getting your ballot in. Yeah, 100%. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much, Missy. Bye. Thanks so much for having us. Bye now. Thanks so much for listening. Please don't forget to vote. The polls are open 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And if you're not sure where to cast your ballot, visit elections.bc.ca. I'm Missy Johnson for Shape the Conversation. Mm-hmm.